Hey everyone, thanks for listening. Now this is a very special self-isolation edition of Pie Hard, which we are calling Piatus, a Collingwood retrospective because things are a little shitty without football at the moment, we know. So we're here to do our bit and bring some joy to the Magpie Army. And what better place to start than the year 2017? Just kidding. <laughs> it's 2010, baby. This is Pie Hard. Looking at Collingwood today, it's hard to imagine that this was one of the toughest suburbs in Melbourne. I have a magpie tattooed in a certain spot. I wouldn't say it's the biggest magpie getting around. Out of control brawl outside a Collingwood pub. 60 years ago, it was lined with boot factories. As gritty, grotty suburbs in prime locations turned into trendy hotspots. One's had five bounces, nearly get another one. He's the smartest guy on the team. He's going to have too many to pick from. You've got to go back to Billy Graham at the MCG for an American to dominate like this. But you can't believe it. I can. Oh. The bubbles bursting three decades of grand final wobbles. A weekend order by the club of 288,000 cans to be consumed. More comfortable in myself. It's as close as you'll get to greatness, you peanut. Shut up. Hey everyone, thanks for listening. For those of you new to the podcast, I just want to give you a bit of an insight into the Pie Hard team. We're a bunch of individuals, Watkins, Ryan and myself. We're going to engage with minds and our hearts. We're going to exchange ideas, thoughts, and even our energy. And to speak from the heart, you need to have courage. You need to be honest and authentic. We're not always going to get it right. And sometimes you're not going to agree with us. But that's okay, because like you, we care. Just like you, we're passionate about the game. So if you want to come along for the ride, join us, because we just love footy. How was that? That is a, uh, that's taking me back. Was that 2010, Damien? No, it wasn't. It was a little bit later. What was it, Ellery? That to me rings true of the, is the architect of the, um, the blood culture, correct? Correct. It's actually such a stain in my memory. I can't actually remember his name. His name is... <laughs> Brad Kirk. Brett Kirk. <laughs> was it Brett Kirk? Okay. Now, before we get to the main course, we need to go back. We need to go all the way back. Before pandemics and plant-based pies, back to when the footy was on Channel 7 and 10 at the same time. We are <laughs> taking you all the way back, back to 2010. And as always, footy is dominating the headlines. Alex, tell us what's happening. It's great to be here, Damo. Um, look... There's a lot of news for Collingwood supporters in 2010, as we all well know. But I've managed to dig up uh, some of the other the other football news from the year, the broader football news, to see if you guys uh, can um, get your memory around some of these big news stories from 2010. Jason has been a very good player for our club since he arrived here in 2007. But recent events have made the relationship between Jason and the Western Bulldogs untenable. The 33-year-old had been out of the team since May after writing a newspaper article urging homosexual players to stay in the closet. One-time teammates will tonight become enemies as Brendan Favola takes on his old side with the Brisbane Lions. I've got to say there's a massive difference between, uh, between the fans of uh, AFL and rugby league. The NRL fans are a little bit more aggressive and a lot more harsh. Good touch at the moment. Looks very composed. Ponzi! 
A season that started so well with five wins from seven outings will end prematurely for the Premiership coach. I am leaving today because of illness and fatigue. The supporters have become sick and tired of me. Essendon has finally got its coaching dream team together, but neither James Hurd nor Mark Thompson were anywhere near Windy Hill for the announcement. Where's Bomber? Bomber's um, he's on extended leave, as we all know. Hi, I'm Ben Cousins. What you're about to watch is a documentary we started making in early 2008. I understand that some of the footage you see in this show is very troubling. The teenager at the centre of the AFL nude photo scandal is threatening to post more explicit <laughs> images online. A day after exposing St Kilda footballers, she says players from Carlton and Sydney are now in her sights. So which news stories did you guys pick up from wow. that? Wow. That's, was that 2010? That sounds like 1910. Was that Akamatis? <laughs> That's outrageous. Correct. Wow. So we had the, uh, I picked up on a few. We had the Bomber Ice Scourge. We had the Ben Cousins Ice Scourge. Hang on, hang we on. We had the, the, bomber, the Bomber Ice Scourge. Was that Bomber Thompson? Extended well, it was leave? The, you know, no, it was the announcement of the Dream Team combination <laughs> of Heard and Thompson. But at, at oh. the announcement, as far as I could tell, at the announcement, um, neither of them showed up. And <laughs> it's probably a already. sign of things to come, wasn't it? <laughs> Did Heard show up? No, neither of them were there. I don't no one showed up. <laughs> <laughs> and we had the, uh, we had the St. Was that the St. Kilda schoolgirl scenario? Dickie Leaks. So that was that, or was that another Dickie Leak, was it? No, it was Dickie Leaks, yeah. It was the. Wow. Oh, hang on. No, no. So as far as I know, Correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, Dickie Leaks was Sam Gilbert had some photos of the boys' cocks from Vegas, the boys mm-hmm. being Rewalt and Del Santo. And yeah. later on, <laughs> a, a year myself, later, right yeah, a year later, Gilbert was um, seeing a young teenage girl in some kind of um, dodgy uh, kind of relationship situation. <clears throat> and yeah. she stole the photos and published them on Facebook. Yeah, we're talking and, about the St Kilda school girl. Yeah, but I think it just gets a bit confusing because I think then <laughs> later on she ended up dating Ricky Nixon. Is that yeah, correct? That's exactly what happened. Oh, no, she tried to set him up. <laughs> she just got excited by the whole thing and wanted to then, she was like, all right, I'm going to expose this guy because I assumed that Ricky Nixon was involved in trying to suppress her. Ah. Wow. So then she's like, no, no, I'm too smart for you. Jeez, what a year. And was What that, a year for I St lo- Kilda after, after <laughs> you know. Some pretty hectic. Um... Oh, it got off to such a great start too. Yeah, go on. We also heard from was that Choco, Choco Williams with the uh, the classic um, Jerry Lewis punchline there. Correct. Tired yeah, and Choco, fatigued. Yeah, Choco got fired mid-season. His last game was against Collingwood. Uh, we had Cousins' Such as Life documentary was released, and um, still going, isn't it? It's fitting that just recently there was. Pretty much the sequel released. I don't know whether you guys had a look at that, but um, things have not improved with old Cuz. Chuck. 2010 was that kind of first um, glimpse into the underbelly of that methamphetamine tornado that was. Um... <laughs> that was soon to wreak havoc. Wow. Jeez. We also had Israel. So... Israel Falau was um, in there. He was announced as um, the trade to trade. Well, the code switch he, to GWS was announced in 2010. Was was he the uh, homosexuals should stay in the closet quote? 
Actually, that was Acker. So um, oh, wow. Ackermanus, there's a couple of homophobes in that uh, collection of uh, audio bites. But we're here to talk about Collingwood. And just building a bit of context, I thought maybe we could start by having a quick look at 2009. Uh, we lost the first final St Kilda. Jack Anthony got us through with a late goal against Adelaide. And then that was in the semi and then we went he was, through. He was known as he was quite the he sorry he was quite the dead eye dick, wasn't he? I remember at the time, I think one of the commentators was like, if you if you had to put the ball in someone's hand, it was going to be his. He was always a he was a direct shot, right? He was a straight shooter. He's amazing. Known I remember. Yeah, I was still still playing football at the time, and I remember looking up his technique on YouTube. He had a little coaching um, seminar there on 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 the tube, and I remember distinctly he took seven steps. And it, always the exact same routine. Oh, wow. It was a stickler for routine, and he was a dead idea. Couldn't miss. I remember two things, particularly after, straight after the goal, he started crying, and then he cried at the siren as well. So he double cried. And then also, do you remember Brad Dick's <laughs> summation in the post-game um, <laughs> interview? Jackie Moon! I knew he was going to kick it. As soon as he got the ball, I knew he was going to kick it. Brad Dick. Who remembers Brad Dick? Love Brad yeah, Dick. I remember Brad Dick well. What a guy! Uh, the missing. He was Malthouse's favourite, wasn't he? He was the yeah, one off, yeah. So Anthony so, was on the list. Not not to cut you off here, but Anthony was on the list the following year, was he? Yeah, and we'll get to that a bit later. The those blokes okay. who were unlucky, perhaps, to miss Ooh, out. Yeah. Um, oh, sad. So we went through to the 2009 preliminary final versus Geelong. Now I had no recollection of this game. I'd buried it so deep. I just I just had no recollection. We even played Geelong in 2009 prelim. But then I looked into it, and of course, the reason I couldn't remember is because we got flogged. Um, we basically lost the clearances sixteen to six. We lost the hitouts forty nine to twenty one. Pendles wasn't playing; had a broken leg, and um, I thought it was instructive that those stats around clearances and hitouts ended our season because that would have been in front of mind as we went into the trade period demo. Well, it's really interesting you say that, Alex, because as we all know, any coach or football person living or indeed not living and therefore unable to vouch for this next statement will tell you that the seeds of a premiership are sown many, many, many years before the actual premiership year. And that is, of course, true for the Collingwood Football Club in 2010. So this tale starts way back... Um, uh, at the 20, oh no, sorry, the 2008 draft when we selected two young and one not so young footballers with our picks 11, 29, and 73. Now they were pick 11, Steel Sidebottom, mm. nickname Rusty or Blue Scope, which I thought was quite funny. Blue Scope. Pick what? Blue Scope. Blue Scope. Blue Scope ah. Steel. Pick number twenty nine, Dane Beams, not as uh, not as fancy, but nicknamed Beamer or Beamsy, and with pick number seventy three, a workhorse journeyman by the name of Bad Bad Leroy Brown, nicknamed. Ooh. He's got the best nickname, nicknamed the Anvil. <laughs> Was he nicknamed the Anvil when he got to the club? Like that was he was the anvil when he arrived, was he? 
I feel like, you know what, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I haven't researched this, but I feel like Anvil was in his old, like, North Melbourne Fremantle days where he sort of, like, lumbered and laboured around. Mm. This was he'd, before the rebirth. He kind of the squ- rebirth. squashed the ball instead of marking it. He was prototype. He was prototype after after he left North Melbourne. He was no longer the anvil. Massive derriere. Huge. So, of course, with pick number 73, a lot of uh, Collingwood fans were very sceptical given, um, given uh, Brown's history with the North Melbourne and the Fremantle Football Club. But um, not, not Mick Malthouse, who has gone on record to say that he watched Brown play several games against Collingwood in the VFL, in, in the Kangaroos VFL side, and had made some mental notes about him being, one, a stand-up fella, a nice bloke, which Malthouse clearly, you know, you go a long way to uh, getting, a, getting a cap under the Malthouse reign with that um, attached to your name. And would never give in. So he always wondered why um, Lee Brown was never getting an opportunity in the top level. Um, of course, he got that opportunity in uh, 2009 when he, when he uh, sorry, 2008 when he was selected. Um, but even so, he, he spent most of the season, I think he spent, um, you know, at least the first 10 rounds in the VFL sort of languishing for a spot. Well, fair to say and we were not excited by his arrival at the club. I mean, he seemed he had that whole journeyman stink about him. Like any 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 player who's arriving at their third club and one of those clubs has been Fremantle has a bit of an odour. And Leroy, we never, ever could have suspected what was about to unfold, could we? No. And, and you're not alone. You're not alone sharing those comments because there was a lot of hate for Lee Brown. So it started, I think, in 2010, 2009, when then AFL chief executive Andrew Demetrio, the hot topic at the time was tanking, and he threw in this he threw in this throwaway line at a press conference. He said Lee Brown played on Jonathan Brown the other night. Was that tanking? Question mark. Oh. Um, Mm. He was like he was he was like that, Demetrio. He loved he loved to um, he loved to twist the screws, so to speak. But fast forward a year later, so that was two thousand and eight. So fast forward to two thousand and nine draft, and again Collingwood was quite active in this area. And two of the selections in the two thousand and nine draft would become pillars in the Premiership side less than twelve months later. Now this is forever known. Our audience will love this. They know this. Forever known as the draft where Melbourne snapped up future captains Tom Scully and Jack Trengrove Trengrove with picks one and two, allowing Richmond to select Dustin Martin with pick number three. But we're not here to go into um, Melbourne's draft history. That's in a separate podcast that we'll be doing uh, in a couple of weeks' time. (laughs) But uh, we ended up... So Sydney ended up trading to Collingwood a 29-year-old premiership ruckman by the name of Darren Jolly to Collingwood for draft picks 14 and 46. But the steal of the draft that year was Collingwood receiving a 26-year-old hard nut from St Kilda who went by the name of Luke Patrick Ball with, get this, pick... Number 
Nice. 30. 26 years old. I mean, he's he always seemed like a wise head, didn't he? I think he, he probably he was seemed captain, like he was he? 31 when he was 21. Yeah, I think they well, made him a... kill the captain? I think they made him a joint joint captain, he was. He was a joint captain very captain. early under Grant Thomas. I played against him. I played against him in um, juniors. He's kicking goals left foot, right foot, 50 metres out. Good play. Strange because he couldn't kick 50 when he was 26. Couldn't kick 50 <laughs> metres, so... That's interesting. You're right. You're right. He got better at Collingwood. I think Buffett and strength or lengthened his hamstrings, if I recall correctly. <laughs> Untightened him. He got faster. Here is an amazing fact for Luke Ball. Guess who the fastest player at Collingwood was 2010, 2011, 2012. Maybe not 2010. Luke Ball. Wouldn't have thought it. I had heard and discounted that um, he was the fastest over like 10 metre sprint or 20 metre sprint. Yeah, I think the problem was he just, um, as games wore on, his body seized up when he was at St Kilda. So it came to the last quarters, and there's a misconception that uh, Ross Lyon didn't want to play him, but it was more to do with the actual output that he was able to provide for St Kilda at the time. And I think it was because his body just seized up, his lower back. He had some problem with a hip-related back hamstring type thing. But um, Buffett, true to being the guru that he was, worked out a way to um, release everything and... Rest is history. Bufferton or Butterfant? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> Never mind. Um, so it's clear that we've done some very cunning recruiting in the 2009 postseason. We've come off a preliminary final defeat where we lost the hitouts and the clearances badly, and we've recruited on a very much uh, a needs basis. We've got Darren Jolly, who at 29 is arguably at the prime of his career for a big man. And the steal of the offseason, Luke Ball, not to mention the anvil, big bad Leroy Brown, just coming into his own after 12 months under Mick. So you'd have to say that list management during this period was an A+. plus. But Damo, what position was the club in off-field going into 2010? Okay, so <clears throat> the bedrock of Collingwood season in 2010 was a commanding fiscal position. So enter the season and off field Collingwood was in the finest financial shape of its life with Eddie Maguire wheeling and dealing the top end of town. And of course, Collingwood's own Bruce Wayne, Alex Wastelitz doing what he does best, mm. making shit tons of cash, <laughs> donating a fraction of it and throwing some of the wildest parties that Turak has ever laid claim to. So let me talk through a timeline of the 2010 season from a fiscal point of view. Now, don't drop out because, believe me, this is interesting. Uh, on the eve of the 2010 season, Alex Wastelitz drops a cool $5 million into the club's coffers on top of the $5 million he has already sunk in the year before. In a coup for the club, Emirates re-signs for another five years as Collingwood's major sponsor, the deal worth about $5.5 million which at the time was one of the most lucrative jumper sponsorships in the AFL. Collingwood then switched jumper sponsors from Wizard, shout out to Wizard, um, to Aussie Home Loans after an acquisition, which was part of a wider lucrative five-year $8 million deal, which was believed to be the single biggest deal ever by an AFL club at the time. Mm. 
And just for a nice little cherry on top, Collingwood and Australian bank Westpac announced a new five-year deal believed to be the highest valued community-based sponsorship in the history of Australian sport. Well, there and you they go. did something else. I mean, that all speaks to a really dominant financial position. This is kind of the culmination of a decade of uh, Eddie Maguire bringing the club back to its power source, wealthy Turak elite. Absolutely. What that actually means is, and, and the premiership clearly helped, but by the end of the year, Collingwood had done so well that when Forbes magazine released a list of the world's top 20 most valuable soccer clubs, German club Hamburg, which were in 14th position, were valued at US $340 million, <clears throat> which was one peg below Collingwood in terms of their earnings. And Manchester, Manchester City, sorry, were 15th in the rankings, were also less than the pies at US $291 million. So Collingwood was up there in the higher echelons of European soccer giants in terms of revenues and earning. Now, when you, can, when you consider our, you know, our population, the country, and the fact that half the states in our country don't even play the sport, I mean, that's a feather in anyone's cap. So what happened? Yeah. Was it just the beach hotel? <laughs> there was a lot of pokies, I think. I'm not surprised that, uh, you know, we were climbing the rankings of European soccer because it that's was amazing, Eddie and Mick's uh, explicit goal to become the Manchester United of Australian oh. football. Well, he, he was the, he was the, he got to the, he got surpassed the Manchester City, which was mm -hmm. pretty good. You pretty sure that. Manchester City would have um, probably improved their fiscal situation since then. <clears throat> since then, yeah, I think since so. They got the, uh, it was some of that oil money, some of that shake, oil money shake in, cash. Yes. yes. Yeah. <clears throat> but I mean, that's a fantastic, like, you know, for all his foibles, Eddie has uh, led the club out of some pretty dark days um, into a position of, of power. And let's let's not kid around. Premierships are won uh, by the mighty in positions of power. So from a humble little footy club to a $344 million giant um, in the space of 20 years. I wonder if the uh, public could see the correlation between our position of financial power and uh, what was to come. Yeah, absolutely. And then also, not only that, I think this was the start of the AFL's fear associated with Collingwood and their race of arms. This is where they mm. put the cap on. Soft cap. Yeah, the soft cap is born here. I mean, we were doing things we weren't doing. We were sampling blood at the end of each game. We don't talk about that stuff. <laughs> Allegedly. But that is exactly right, Chunky, and um, we'll save that for another podcast. But, of course, what, you know, what Collingwood does, the AFL uh, pays heed and then restructures the league off the back of that to ensure a, a viable product. So we won't go into that in too much detail, but I think you're dead right on that one. I think they saw the, uh, they saw the success, they saw the hunger, they, they saw the fire, and they saw the, the wastelitzes and... Uh, you know, did what they can to kind of curb 
Great. So going into 2010, our list is in tip-top shape. We are in an impregnable financial position. I just wonder whether people predicted at the time the Collingwood juggernaut that was on its way. And where better to find out what the football world thought of Collingwood's chances in 2010 than around the water cooler at ABC Broken Hill. Grandstand AFL on 891 ABC Adelaide, ABC South Australia and Broken Hill. Welcome to our coverage of the football season for 2010. Peter Walsh and Roger Wills offering our thoughts and theories on how your particular football team will journey or will enjoy or endure the journey into 2010. Collingwood have Luke Ball and perhaps the recruit of the year, Darren Jolly, into their team. They were very close last year. A lot of pundits are saying definitely Collingwood and a lot are saying they've slipped under the radar. I can, uh, with a fair amount of confidence, predict Collingwood in the eight, but in the bottom half of the eight, I think they'll just miss the top four. See, I think they'll make the top four and I don't think Brisbane will, so that'll be intriguing. Do you want an argument now, do you? (laughs) (laughs) Darren Jolly, terrific recruit, because this will free up the boy from Mansfield, Josh Fraser, who has real athletic skills. I like the defence of Collingwood, led by Prestigia Como and Nick Maxwell. I think a premiership side has to have a very strong and constructive defence. I think Collingwood will really improve and will really challenge. I think behind St Kilda Western Bulldogs, I think they could be number three. So three players mentioned. Maxwell. Maxwell, not far off. Great leader. Um, Premiership captain. Presty. Unlucky. Didn't make it to the big dance. Josh Fraser, interesting uh, analysis there from ABC Broken Hill. I'm not sure that um, I'm not sure they had the most prescient kind of look at the season, but I think it's kind of reflective of the footy world weren't all on board as Collingwood becoming a juggernaut. People didn't necessarily see it coming. Fascinating. Shout out to our, all of our listeners in Broken Hill, by the way. But isn't it interesting to hear? Uh, Josh Fraser spoken in such glowing terms because on the Pie Hard podcast, we love Josh Fraser. If you haven't been to Mansfield, get up there. Fantastic place. Um, take a fishing rod if it's in summer. Snowboard. Well, there's only there's only one person on the Pie Hard panel that may or may not have played against Josh Fraser mm. up in the uh, the league up there in the high country. Demo. You know what? Yeah, they were called the they were called the uh, the Mansfield Demons. Oof. And uh, he kicked 11, 11 goals on me one, one frightful day. Um, but we won't go into that. But what we will go into is I think all of the pundits were underestimating a certain Lee Brown. So not Lee Brown's name wasn't mentioned in any of those uh, write-ups. And unfortunately, Josh Fraser was certainly um, one of the ones to pay for that early recruiting spree that we touched on in 2008. As was uh, a few others, which we might get into a little bit later on. But um, shout out to Josh Fraser if he's listening because a loyal 200-game servant of the uh, Collingwood Football Club who unfortunately probably didn't have the best timing. No, indeed not. Not great timing for Josh. And I think perhaps the writing was on the wall with the recruitment of Jolly. But I seem to remember that um, there was some hope that given Fraser was a very mobile type ruckman, good around the ground and at ground level, that perhaps he could play in tandem with Jolly, but 
not really to be. He played nine games in 2010, and it seemed to kind of fizzle out a bit towards the pointy end. But um, getting ahead of ourselves. Actually, I can see here online that um, the Mansfield Football Netball Club is actually called the Eagles now. (laughs) So they obviously realised that it would be impossible culturally to win any silverware whilst they were called the Demons. But that's by the by. Chunky, how did the 2010 season start out for the Mighty Pies? Good. Uh, It's hard to say that you could have picked that we would be premiered by the end of the year, but the form was good. First loss, St Kilda by point in the NAB Cup, which then relegated us into what's now known as the NAB Challenge, or was known as NAB Challenge, that's now just regional. But um, we won the next three of the NAB Challenge. So it was almost an under-the-radar um, setup from that regard. We, we, we performed really well. Led us into good form during the season, really good form. What were those moments in the season, Chunk, where you... You thought were kind of instructive to how we were developing. Uh, I think everyone always reflects back to it's one of the most popular games of the 2000 and you know last 20 years as far as the St Kilda vs Collingwood game round three. Milngate, Malthouse Milngate. Oh, uh, Milngate, massive. It was one of those little incidents, which would probably be a bigger incident today. Um, I think if it happened mm. today, there'd be all kinds of recriminations from social media, from society, from politicians, CEOs um, in the AFL. Basically, apparently, Milne made derogatory comments um, as Malthouse was coming onto the ground at one of the breaks, made derogatory comments about Malthouse's age. Uh, At 56, Malthouse was the league's oldest senior coach. Um, The bit I like is, of course, Malthouse's... Loyal Lieutenant. Retort. Malthouse's loyal Lieutenant, Paul Lecuria, in response to uh, Milne, uh, once uh, things got heated, allegedly suggested finishing this off in the car park. (laughs) (laughs) Well, hang on. Was it at Marvel Stadium? Because that would be underneath. (laughs) Yes, it was at Marvel Stadium. So it would have been a bloodbath underneath the uh, (laughs) turf there. No oxygen. And, of course, the the centre of the entire... Um, fracker was that uh, Mick uh, called Milne a fucking rapist and um, oh, I just think it's interesting I mean just quick poll with you guys which, <laughs> which is worse of those three comments one is derogatory comments about Malthouse's age one is let's finish this off in the car park and one is you're a fucking rapist well I just want to go out there and I just want to go out there and say I would have thought the younger man would have gone with a fucking rapist comment and the older man would have gone with the old school car park situation <laughs> but the the, uh, the tables were flipped on that one so I think I think Malthouse has completely dispensed the uh, the old man argument with that that retort that is cutting edge that is modern well, that is Twitter tro- that is Twitter <laughs> troll level Does anyone remember Immediately after the game in his post press conference, they said, "What did you say? Did you say rapist?" And he said, "No, I said therapist or something." He tried to pretend. He tried to pretend there was something else. You're a out. fucking therapist, Milne. Well, he's pretending. Are, to, he uh, the St Kilda Football Club in the aftermath threatened to, or they said they launched a full investigation. Um, and obviously things escalated there after the match. Malthouse pretty swiftly apologised, I think it was the next day. He made an apology, said, 
uh, I, I said the wrong thing. But what I loved about the aftermath was the Collingwood Club statement. Like the the whole conflict <laughs> didn't kind of end there. You'd think it's over. Like St Kilda launched a full investigation. Malthouse apologised. St Kilda dropped the investigation. And mm. then the Collingwood Club statement read like this. Due to the fact that Stephen Milne acknowledges his comments to Mick Malthouse were inappropriate, Collingwood will not be taking action through the AFL regarding his conduct. <laughs> just laid it straight oh, back on Leon, which is such a power play from the pies. Yeah, it's a boss move. So who was behind that? Was that um, who was our head of football at the time? Was it Walsh? I mean, that's just that's just a power yeah, play. Walsh. That is just that is just a chess move if ever I've heard one. Oh. And probably doesn't have too many legs to stand on, Milne. So I think um, you know if that was another player of the ilk of you know. So other memories from 2010, Lenny, home away. Lenny Hayes. Well, huge rivalry. I mean, obviously, the St Kilda rivalry for me was the biggest thing over the year. Yep. I mean, I just felt like if we could beat St Kilda, we could win that year. <clears throat> Clearly, um, our biggest, our most successful year since 1990 from as far as a, a season point of view, or maybe 2003, perhaps. Um, we lost four games. Lost to Geelong round nine. Uh, was a kind of point in the season where you thought he's kind of going to be thereabouts at the end of the year. But looked a little shaky mid-year, but then by round 16, that was the big game. Round 16, we beat St Gilda. Uh, we beat them convincingly after halftime. And to me, that looked like the turning point to suggest that Collingwood could go all the way. And it had been a long time. So all so all year, um, St Kilda had been the team to beat, and in round sixteen, we comprehensively beat them. Is that is that right? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that was the game where we, the game plan seemed to click. The personnel seemed to know what they were doing, and Collingwood was a confident, solid side that didn't have, you know, as much competition as we thought they did. Malthouse after the season said that. He believed at the time that the first win from St Kilda early in the year, St Kilda were operating near their limit to get over the pies. And he had a feeling that day that they've got them because he saw so much growth in the in the Collingwood group. Mm. I thought that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. But the last thing I'll say is that it wasn't a year compared to 2011 where we dominated so convincingly that you thought that they were a complete... I mean, that was a loss 2011, but we won lots of games. We only lost four games and had one draw against Melbourne. But we never seemed yeah. to be completely in control every single game. And there was a few blowout wins, but aside from that, it was we just somehow got the job done. Was it? I believe we actually lost the round 22 versus Hawks. Hawthorne. Could- we had a shot. I think Beams had a shot very late in the game to win it, mm. and we lost. But um, there was a sense by that stage I think we'd stitched up first spot on the ladder, yeah. care of the Melbourne draw. Yeah. We finished two points ahead of Geelong. Geelong, obviously, the premiers from the previous year. Mm-hmm. But I think by that late home and away season, we'd certainly established ourselves as, you know, well and truly in the mix by claiming the McClellan Trophy, yeah. if that's what it's called. <laughs> Do you actually get a trophy? Oh, yeah. Is there a physical trophy or is it just in name only? No, no, it's, uh, it's shiny and all its glamour in the cabinet. 
Really? Down at Alberton Oval, they've got a huge <laughs> long cabinet collection which is of full of McClellans. <laughs> <laughs> Nevertheless, we will take any type of silverware offered to us, and certainly it was just reward for a very strong season. Thank you for the wrap-up of the home and away, Chunky. But as Collingwood supporters, we are built for finals. And despite the fact that our listeners will know in great detail the incredible feats of the 2010 team throughout the final series, maybe, just maybe, we can activate some of those forgotten memories, if that's not an oxymoron, and take you back into the midst of that special, special time. Anticipating this moment for weeks. They've had the minor premiership in their keeping for some time. They're about to square off against the Western Bulldogs. Moving into finals, I think we all had the excitement. I mean, anytime you finish top four, you've got that excitement that comes with being having the double chance, having earned it. And obviously Collingwood comes alive when we're at the G on those big Friday, Saturday nights. Mm. We're very fortunate in our lifetime to have experienced a lot of these big occasions, but what are your recollections uh, of that that time, Damo? Well, it's interesting you say big, Al, because it was indeed at the MCG, but the crowd was 66,545, which seems... Is this the first This the is the qualifying... You were talking about the qualifying final, of course. That seems like a pretty small crowd for a big... Well, that's probably final. on account of our opposition probably on account of the opposition. Um, so looking at the first qualifying final, uh, it was a, just top line. It was a sluggish start, but Collingwood were never really challenged with uh, Dane Swan, the man of the moment, racking up a, a monumental 39 touches and kicking three goals and a young Scott Pendlebury amassing 30 disposals and two goals. So overall, Collingwood dominating that game. Final scores, Collingwood 17-22-124, thrashing Footscray 8-14-62. The two things that stood out re-watching the game last week, which was quite enjoyable, was one, just how elite Scott Pendlebury looked so early on in his career. He was 22 mm-hmm. in 2010 and... And in hindsight, like looking at him playing back then, it was kind, it's kind of a mirror image of what we see from Scott Pendlebury at the moment, just really smooth in transition, time stands still, elite disposal, creeping forward, kicking big goals when, when needed. And, um, yeah, just a little bit of a, uh, a nod to the, to the player that he would become. It was exciting to watch him. He, you know, had the long hair, none of this fade business back there and no dreadlocks at that point. Um, and number two was just how important at that stage by the finals Lee Brown had become to that side. Like his his first and second efforts, his running, his chasing, his like ragdolling of the best Bulldog defenders up in the forward line, kicking his like two or three goals a game um, had just elevated him from this kind of two-bit you know, half forgotten journeyman to this kind of linchpin of the Collingwood lineup, even prompting this exchange from the Channel 10 commentary team. This is the same Lee Brown that we've seen for 11 seasons. 
It's not someone else, is it, Wolsey? No, it's the same Lee Brown. I've never seen him in better shape, Hutto. So finally some praise for Lee Brown as we've been um, hearing more of the negative side of Lee Brown throughout, but that just gives you a sense of um, the, the jaws on the floor in the, in the Channel 10 commentary box when Lee Brown started to strut his stuff on the big stage. But, of course, there can only be one hard moment of the match, and this game's hard moment came in the fourth quarter, and it went a little something like this. Rejuvenated in the last 12 months. Pendlebury's ball handling is wonderful to watch. Blair and then moving forward again. Didac just getting a bit of warm-up going here. He's still got some more to give. Didac from the pocket. Have a go! Well, the fellow who chased him, Callum, when he kicked the goal, he just put his hands to his head and said, I can't believe it. That was, that's the goal of the game, no doubt about it. He hit that ball, running away from goal at full pace, juggled it, went to the boundary line. He wanted to centre it, there was no option. He's put it through. Peter Dacos would be applauding. It was amazing. Oh, I was metres away. I was right there. I could have touched him. I could have touched Dyack at that point. But what was great about it for me was the ball, the opposition was right on his hammer. But he realised if he grabbed possession, he would have been tackled. So he just tapped his two or three taps to himself in the air. So he doesn't take full possession and then pirouetted. But it was at full speed, at full pace. Yeah, I was, at the time, more amazed by the fact of how hard he hit the ball and how he didn't get tackled. I mean, the defender couldn't do anything. Isn't it great when you are on the ground level like that, Chunky, and you you just get that kind of immediacy exactly. in the viewing It's different experience. than watching on TV, isn't it? You can see the pace, the hardness, like the slap of bodies against each other, and you you get a different appreciation for Absolutely. the skills. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a different game, right on the boundary, definitely. Defenders can't do much more than that. I think you're taught as a defender to push your um your your forward um, player to the boundary rather than in. But in Didac's case, it was just just set up one of the uh, one of the goals of his career. Um, rewatching it again, it's just like yeah, it's just a a, a marvel to behold. All right, so we uh, we comfortably accounted for the Bulldogs in the qualifying final. Where to next, Damo? Okay, so next up was the preliminary final against uh, Geelong at the MCG. Um, now, I'm not sure if you guys are aware of this uh, little fact, but Leon Davis was replaced in the preliminary final team by Tyson Goldsack. So a bit of a premonition as to what was to, to come uh, in a couple of weeks' time, but were you aware that Leon was dropped for that game? I was going to say I think you got mixed up with the grand final replay. No. But that happened two weeks earlier. Yeah, uh, so he had a quiet game against the Bulldogs, um, and I guess Mick, uh, not wanting to tempt fate, um, yeah, dropped Leon and brought in the more the young utility in Tyson Goldsack. In terms of the game, um it was really a beautiful thing to watch. So Collingwood jumped the Cats early, um, kicked a seven goal to one first quarter, which essentially set up the win. Um, at one point, we were leading as much as 80 points um, before we completely and did the right thing and, and took the foot off the gas in the second half and the Cats were allowed to slam some junk goals on. But really, it was, uh, it was a calculating and efficient win by the Magpies with Swan, Pendlebury and Didac, uh, the leading possession winners. Uh, aided by 12 individual goal kickers um, with Cloak 
topping the list with three goals. A very accurate cloak, if I recall that evening. Uh, final scores, Collingwood 18, 12, 120, Belting Geelong 11, 13, 79. But of course, like we said, there can only be one hard moment and that belongs to the man of the moment, Lee, Leroy Brown, who on a beautiful, nice, firm green wicket managed to pull a rabbit from the hat and produce what we believe to be the real ball of the century. They needed it, didn't they? Ablett again. Chapman. Maxwell bends that back and runs away and then kicks to half forward. Didak in a one-on-one. And then Lee Brown bursting forward. And then with a ball burst at a full forward, it's bounced the wrong way. Oh, he's a magician. That's not the Lee Brown we used to know, is it? We don't... You, you don't plan for that. Well, isn't it amazing? Geelong almost kicked that goal that Maxwell spoiled, and that one was heading for the left behind post. We'll probably get a good angle of it here, but where the ball's headed, where it bounces, that is an absolute <laughs> left turn. Shane Warne might have had the ball of the century, but I reckon Lee Brown's... That is amazing, isn't it? Makes Geelong all of a sudden think, uh-oh, there's sort of that... It's the footy gods. When that freaky, when the footy gods interfere in the game, it's hard to defy them. Well, the Sharons are supposed to be neutral. <laughs> this footy apparently barracks for the Magpies. That was amazing. 25 to 7, midway through the term. They just don't really rate Lee Brown, do they, commentators? Always a backhanded That's... comment. That's not the Lee Brown we used to know. <laughs> Who's the Lee Brown you used to yeah. know? Shit player. Jeez. Ruthless. Hush. And how's Dennis Committee seeming to suggest that somehow the ball had an ulterior motive and that was to uh, to usher the Magpies home? Quite the I've got to theorists. say, like, on the night, it, there's nothing quite like that feeling when you know that your team is on and in a big final... It'll just it'll happen over the period of like five or ten minutes when you come to the realization that your team is on, and it's when they've kind of kicked two or three consecutive goals. I remember it happening with Mason Cox in twenty eighteen prelim versus the Tigers. I mean, you just kind of think shit, and then you do think about the footy gods a bit. Well, at least Dennis does. Mm. Is that a Collingwood thing too? I mean, Collingwood seems to be a team that's on or off in the finals. I actually think we're on. Yeah. Almost all the time. I can't remember. Maybe it's because I've banished it from my memory, but I can't remember that many like really terrible finals performances in our time. See, I disagree. I think I think we're even when we're on, we're not really on. Like when we're on in the back of the mind, and we'll talk about this in the. Um, we could talk about this about a lot of grand finals actually, but we'll talk about this um, a little bit with the grand final. But even even when we're like you know, scorching it. There's just something in the back of the head that tells you this is going to come unstuck. That's how I feel when I watch Collingwood, even when they're on, even in that preliminary final, probably up until, you know, five minutes into three-quarter time where you take a collective breath. But uh, it's too many times. Been burnt too many times. Yeah, it's like the uh, the bulletproof vest has imperfections in it but there's still a problem even if you're completely invincible at that point you're not going to feel 100 percent. i completely agree the weight of history is uh is strong with this team oh the pessimists amongst <laughs> you i mean geez we were going to smash them all along i mean it was one of the most one-sided prelims 
in history. I loved it. I loved, I loved a couple of things. The Collingwood chant. Collingwood. That was the first time I'd, I'd heard it, like at, at its peak, where it just, it just kind of there's something about the intonation and that kind of like the lack of musical ability required that it just captured the Magpie Army, and it really was just deafening. And it felt like such an advantage, such a home game versus these, you know, handbaggers from down the Geelong Road. The other thing I loved about it was um, day after Matthew Scarlett um, was quoted in The Age saying that um, he'd never experienced pressure like it, that kind of swarm, you know, pressure mentality that the, the pies brought. And I, it was immensely satisfying to read that, especially given Scarlett's uh, later words about um, about the Magpies, in particular, his uh, hanging out to dry of Nick Maxwell. I don't know whether you guys recall, but no. A few years later, Scarlo, in his uh, autobiography, um, came out with a few a few home truths for for our premiership captain. He said that in that 2010 prelim, when the Magpies uh, were winning comfortably at three quarter time, Maxwell approached the Geelong huddle and uh, started sledging its players, the Geelong players. And so a year later in the 2011 grand final, after Cameron Ling booted, booted the late goal, which was, I think was the sealer, um, Scarlo, and this is in Scarlet's words, I reckon I ran almost 100 metres to get in his face and give him a spray. That's Scarlet running to Maxwell. I reminded him that I hadn't forgotten what he said and then proceeded to tell him what I thought of him as a player. Highly overrated. None of our players had any respect for Maxwell. We hated how he was being compared to Tom Harley. It's simply, it was simply wrong. Wow, that's heavy. Weren't they teammates? Didn't they, didn't they come from the Geelong area? Probably not at the same time. I think Maxwell played with Bartell at some stage. Yeah. St. Joseph's. Um, wow, savage. look, I mean, savage criticism. I must say that I, I can understand, this is controversial, but I can understand from an opposition player's point of view or an opposition supporter, I can understand why Nick Maxwell would get under your skin. Can you guys see that? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, was absolutely. His strength was his most annoying strength. What's that? I mean, he's a complete perfect battler. I mean, it's like he turned his battling ability into his greatest strength. He's like a Delavadova. You know, he'll scrap and he'll beat and he'll punch and he'll kick, but he's not going to go away. But he's also a complainer on the field. I mean, the amount of times he demonstrably objected to a correct phone uh, call from the umpire, you kind of go, look, Maxwell, he almost ripped his arm off. Just take the free. But, I mean, it's the biggest travesty in his eyes, every single free kick. So I had a lot of friends that hated him. The moment, the moment after the drawn grand final, where he was interviewed on ground, and I think his delivery was like, you know, I can't remember verbatim, but it was like, oh, it's just a joke, you know, it's a joke. We shouldn't be doing it, and it's just his his delivery, um, that just he made said, me drop my head slightly. What did he say? It's probably going to take this for the AFL to change the rules. It's an absolute joke. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, mate. Oh, mate. I don't know if we've ever seen 44 blokes go to war like that. Yeah. Anyway, was, we'll, get to, that. we'll get to the draw. Look, we love Maxwell, Premiership captain. Important to clarify. Immortalized. High hard. 
we're big on Maxwell, but we can also empathise uh, with people like Matthew Scarlett, who I think is also a bit of an arsehole. Yeah, personally, absolutely. massive arsehole. Um, Look, as far as I'm concerned, Matthew Scarlett should be known as Chris Town's step lap. I mean, that's <laughs> that's what he is. <laughs> Let's never forget that. Not only just one specky mark of the year, might I add. So we made it through the prelim and comfortably and, well, the town was a buzz. Pies in the, big, in the big dance. A big week ahead. And I don't know about you guys, but there's, there's always a few kind of memories that linger from those big grand final weeks. My kind of outlook is always just infused with low-level anxiety mm-hmm. and... You've kind of got this gut churning anticipation. Um, you kind of can't wait for the day to come quick enough. Part of you wishes you were on holiday at the beach because you know that, like, it's probably going to be too much psychologically to cope with uh, yep. if you lose. Yep. But then there's always this little voice in your head which is like, oh, shit. Imagine if we won. Mm. Mm. And that little voice during this particular week was pretty loud because there was a sense that we had a young, fresh, fearless team. Mm. And I tell you what, boys, I cannot wait to relive Grand Final Fortnight again this coming week. That's right, because in the next edition of Pie Hard, we're going to review not one, but two 2010 Grand Finals. We're going to get together in isolation to answer the big questions, like... Which coach wore sunglasses in the three-quarter time huddle? Was Erwin Rommel the first international rookie from Germany and did he win the Magpies of Flag? All of the soundtrack of Dennis Cometti's American pen pal, James McKenna, whoever the hell that is. And, of course, our Lionel. That's it for part one of our 2010 Pietas retrospective. This is Pie Hard. Hello. Smile